Thank you, Philip. Good morning. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, yes, I'm Jeremy. I'm the, an associate pastor and elder at Grace London, which is a church in Waterloo. Um, I'm here with my wife, Jen, our little boy, uh, Caleb, upstairs. Um, so today we're going to be unpacking something of the timeless wisdom on this whole question of sexuality. I'm going to tell you my story of being gay, of becoming a Christian, and everything that's happened after that. And as we do that, I really want to tackle some of the key questions uh, that kind of arise on this whole question of sexuality. Now, as we approach this subject of sexuality, I'm aware that there'll be different feeling in the room. For some of you, this is an intensely personal issue. Uh, you're gay, or you know people who are gay, uh, family members, close friends. You know something of the, the human reality that this topic speaks to. For others, uh, the traditional Christian teaching on this subject will feel harsh to you. Uh, you struggle with it. It doesn't feel loving. And I want to show you that the timeless biblical wisdom on this subject is much better news than many people would, would claim, many people would realize. And yet for others, I think you feel like aliens on this subject. You're aware that we live in a world that would describe the Christian worldview or Christian teaching on this subject as bigoted or deeply objectionable. And you feel something of that sense that you're out of step with the culture on this subject. Maybe you feel that in your workplace or in your friendship group. You feel like you're, you have a radically different view to the people around you. And so we need to consider how we engage with our culture on this question. It's not enough just to think about it for our own lives, but also how we engage with a culture that finds the Christian teaching and wisdom on this subject uh, objectionable. So then I'll start with my story, and then we'll kind of pick up the teaching as we go through. So I realized I was gay at the age of 11. Uh, just as my friends were experiencing attraction towards girls, I was experiencing attraction towards guys. And this was about 20 years ago, and... Uh, British attitudes were very different to what they are now. I, I didn't want to be gay, uh, but I recognized that those were my feelings. Uh, by the age of about 15 or 16, I had, uh, this had become a significant part of my identity. Uh, I'd come out to most of my friends, to my mum, uh, dating, starting to meet people. So it was a significant part of my life. How do people react? Well, initially, I felt quite good. My friends uh, were kind of positive or, or accepting in some way, but quite quickly started to feel alienated from the people around me. It's easy to feel um, like an easy target. There's lots of banter, but actually looking back at it, a lot of it was kind of more bullying or humiliation. I was nervous of that news getting out to my school, I'd con considering how I'd be perceived by my teachers and by my friends, by, by people I didn't know. I was really concerned about what kind of impact this would have on my career prospects, on the fu my future as a result. I was particularly nervous of how my dad would react. I don't come from a Christian family, but I knew he wouldn't approve. And so as a result, I, I had something of a kind of significant drive for success, which came out of that, to, to really try and prove myself, to be as successful as possible, so I could turn around to people who'd be kind of been mean and say, ha, I'm better than you, and also so I could um, kind of basically get to be in a successful place in society to so be able to kind of say, okay, I know I'm gay dad, but at least I've kind of achieved this. And I think, despite the fact that society's attitudes have shifted quite a lot in the last 20 years, I suspect this is something of a relatively common phenomenon for gay people growing up. Only in 2014, uh, the BBC and Metro did a study and found that 42% of uh, UK gay youth have uh, sought medical help for anxiety or depression. A similar number have considered suicide. Many are growing up 
deeply confused about who they are, experiencing anxiety or shame or isolation. Looking to a whole range of uh, blind alleys for answers. So what I'm trying to suggest to you really is that growing up gay is not an easy thing. And the first of all then, as we approach this subject, it's really important as Christians that we examine our own attitudes. When we're talking about the subject, we're describing a people to be loved rather than a political or moral campaign. It's easy to feel like we're on the losing side of something of a culture war and to feel something of a, a, a subconscious or conscious resentment towards the dominant voices in our culture who think that Christians are old-fashioned or bigoted or opposed to the kind of high value of sexual freedom, which is so popular in our culture. As we deal with this accusation of bigotry, the great challenge for us as a church and as us as individuals is to show the world, and gay people in particular, that we love them. Primarily because we, we know that they're loved by God, who loved them so much that he was willing to send his son to die for them. And in all of this, I think Christ is something of our model for loving engagement with the world. Throughout the Gospels, Christ is spending time showing compassion to those whose lives are messy, who are not obedient to the law, including the sexually immoral. In uh, Mark chapter 2, Jesus is um, having dinner at the house of Levi, the tax collector. And there's just this verse, uh, uh, verse 15, where it says this, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It's a very incidental detail. You could easily skip over it. But I think it's fascinating that he describes they were comfortable in his presence. They were reclining at table, having dinner with him. They know that he loves them. Not at the expense of speaking truth, as you can go through the gospel, you'll see that Jesus is willing to challenge anybody and everybody. But they feel comfortable to in his presence. So as we consider this question, we have to say, do gay people feel comfortable to be around you? Do they know that you're for them? If we, have to, if we are to have any hope of sharing Christ with this community, they are going to need to know that we love them and to see the love of Christ in us. I've got, uh, used to work in a startup business and I've got a dear friend called Ollie and I uh, told him my story after working with him for a little while, um, becoming a Christian, choosing to be celibate and everything happened after that. And as he heard my story, his first reaction was, that is categorically homophobic. Like this is, you know, and I said, why are you, why are you friends with me if, I, if you feel like this is categorically homophobic? And firstly, his first answer was, well, everyone has foibles. Everyone kind of has their own little idiosyncrasies. But then he said to me, I can see the way that you manage and uh, care for one of our gay colleagues. And I can see the way that you take time to kind of coach him and support him. And I can see just by your actions that you're not homophobic. So we need to make sure that we're approaching this subject with the love of Christ. So then I'll carry on my story, what happened next. Well, so I'm, I'm from a non-Christian family. My dad's Jewish, mum's Catholic, but no really belief in God or anything like that. Um, but I got a Bible at school and I started to read the Gospels. And as I read the Gospels, I was just struck by the person of Christ. He just spoke with such authority. And I, w- I just started to wonder, could he be the Messiah? I went to the Christian Union at school, uh, heard something of the Gospel, and I was drawn to it. But quite quickly, I started to ask the question, what would this mean for me? What would it mean for my sexuality? I spent a lot of time reading on the internet. Uh, this was kind of the late, early 2000s. There were lots of kind of individual websites starting to be created. You know, they all look, they're very old-fashioned now if you look at them. But a lot of kind of individual blog posts. And I was trying to um, really find out whether it was a question of, was following Jesus compatible with being gay? 
and really trying to find out if it's possible within Scripture to justify gay relationships. And try as I might, I reluctantly came to the conclusion that the Bible was clear, that sex belongs in marriage, and marriage is for a man and a woman. So following Jesus would have meant becoming single and celibate for the rest of my life. And to be quite frank, I, I wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. Just like the uh, rich young man who walked away from Jesus because he uh, wasn't willing to give up his wealth when Jesus says, uh, tells him to give up his wealth. I wasn't willing to surrender the possibility of being uh, in a lifelong loving relationship uh, to follow Christ, which is kind of ironic. Uh, so I went to university and I pursued my passions to the full, trying to be as successful as possible to justify myself in the eyes of the world and, and those around me. Um, Run, involved in the student newspaper, student elections, running my own business, um, and embrace my sexuality in all its fullness. So then, but I have to go back to this question, and I think this is really important for us to consider. Does the, what does the Bible say about gay relationships? Was I right in my conclusion that the Bible is clear about gay relationships? And I think it's really important to ask this because we've seen over the last few years that many people come out um, and start to challenge accepted, the, the accepted Christian teaching on this subject. Uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before that, uh, Vicky Beeching came out with her uh, biography, and, and they're trying to really challenge what we understand to be Christian teaching. And I think as we consider the biblical teaching, we'll see a clear universal thread from Genesis to the New Testament of this vision of sex within marriage and marriage between a man and a woman. In creation, and I realize we're going to go back to some of the, the themes that Philip mentioned when he started this series, um, we see that vision of marriage and seeing that sex is intrinsic to that design for marriage. Genesis 2, he says, uh, this is Adam says, this at last is the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and woman were naked and not ashamed. See, right at the center of this vision of marriage from Genesis 2, means that um, a man and woman will express this permanent one flesh union of giving themselves to one another. This is not a gender neutral construct, but a union of a complementary pair, man and woman, equal but distinct. And they come together in a physical reminder, really, of the bigger picture of marriage, that they've given themselves entirely to the other in every respect. Fast forward to the New Testament, we see that Jesus reaffirms this vision of marriage and challenges sexual immorality. In Matthew 15, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The word he uses for sexual immorality here is porneia. It's really something of a catch-all term for sexual activity or expression outside of man-woman marriage. Premarital sex, fornication, homosexuality. He doesn't need to mention it specifically, but he's effectively challenging any sexual activity outside of marriage. Paul then goes on to develop this theme. And the passage I want to look at briefly is 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 9 to 11. This is what he says. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think this passage is both deeply challenging and sobering, but it's equally very hopeful. It's challenging because it talks about homosexual practice. 
men who have sex with men, it's included in this list of sins that will ultimately result in someone not inheriting the kingdom of God. It's challenging for all of us, though, really, because if we look hard enough, we can see that we're all included somewhere on this list. Greedy, adulterers. Well, Jesus makes it very clear in the New Testament that if you've um, looked at someone else lustfully, you've committed adultery. It's as good as committing adultery. How many of us in our room, would, how many of us in this room would, would say we've never lusted after someone else? It talks about idolaters. If you look at the, the, through the New Testament, the vision of idolatry is much deeper than uh, kind of worshipping at some kind of false uh, idol. Actually, it's about build, we can build our life around anything else, around success, around marriage, around our careers, and make something of an idol, um, an idol out of those things. That we come to worship them and we start to center our lives around those things. We say, this is of supreme importance and certainly above my worship of God. The human tendency to construct idols is universal. So what we're saying really here is that homosexuality is not a special category of sin. This is really important because some of you will be asked in your workplaces, is, what do you think of homosexuality? Do you think it's a sin? Well, my answer, whenever, whenever anybody asks me that question, is to give them a big view of sin. Say so it's, much, it's much worse than you think. Actually, it's all of us are sinners. All of us have rejected God's authority and build our lives around other things. We're not focused on this one issue. We're saying this is true of all humanity. But this passage is also deeply hopeful. The end of the passage, Paul says, this is what some of you were, saying none of you are beyond redemption. The problem is when uh, the, the world hears something of the biblical teaching on homosexuality, it sounds like bigotry to them. It sounds like Paul is saying to them, um, there is no hope for gay people. And that's precisely the opposite of what Paul's saying here. Saying this was true of some of you, but you've been rescued into Christ's family. He's washed you clean. He's forgiven you. So the Bible neither condemns homosexuality as a special category of sin, but neither does it endorse a theology of anything goes. I just want to add one further thing on the subject, which is be careful of finding an interpretation of Scripture that suits the choices that you want to make or others want to make. And to Timothy, Paul warns Timothy, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to God and wholesome, no, sorry, to listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. People have come up with all sorts of creative ways of explaining away what I would say is the clear and plain teaching of Scripture, the consistent New Testament vision to challenge any sexual activity outside of marriage and to the marriage between a man and woman. So I think the, subject, the answer is clear. What happened next in my story then? Well, I was in my second year at university. I was living a really intense, busy life trying to achieve my goals, my dreams of success so I could prove myself and my worth. And yet, as I had achieved what I'd dreamt of and academically or business and whatever, I realized that I was no happier than I was. I was, I was as angry and insecure as ever. And no amount of success could change that. I had a conversation with a friend at the time. We were both running this business together. And I said, isn't it great? We're doing well running this business. And we kind of achieved our dreams. He said, oh, no, we're, gonna, we're doing this to get, to get our first jobs. Then we get the first jobs. Then we're going to be working hard to get the promotion and the promotion and the promotion and the promotion. I said, where does it end? And he said, to we're in our midlife crisis. We divorce our wives, buy a fancy car, and uh, kind of have an existential crisis. I thought, there's got to be more to life than that. Um, I had a Christian friend who just really showed me unconditional love. 
I trusted him. He lovingly challenged me in all sorts of ways. I saw him wince at some of the things that I was doing, but I never felt judged or excluded by him. And quite unexpectedly, um, I prayed uh, with him to invite Jesus to have control of my life. Now, as I started to follow Jesus, I realized that becoming a follower of Jesus would mean surrendering my whole life to Christ's lordship. It would change everything. What I did with my time, how I worked, my identity, and my relationships. So I made the decision to surrender my relationships to Jesus, the plan on being single and celibate for the rest of my life, uh, saying no to relationships, one-off encounters, pornography, etc. And this was a deeply countercultural decision. I lived with uh, six straight guys at the time. Uh, this was in the era of lads mags and uh, like FHM and Loaded, and many of the pages of these magazines formed something of the wallpaper of our house at the time. It was a kind of a sex-saturated house in that sense. And when I told them that I would uh, be choosing not to have sex, uh, to look at porn or anything else, they told me that I was mental. I would never be able to suppress this appetite, and it would drive me crazy to try. A few years later, my brother and his wife uh, got very angry with me um, because they thought, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to live out who you are. They were confounded at the possibility that I could be happy in singleness. So I think you have to ask the question, why does uh, the prospect of singleness, of denying yourself any sexual relationship, so jar with our society? Because I think it is that question that looms behind uh, our culture's confusion and and kind of, if you ever hear the Christian teaching on this subject, the idea that it could be um, impossible to do that. I think Becca, when when Becca preached on singleness, she mentioned about uh, a journalist interviewing David Bennett, who's a... former gay activist who's come to follow Christ. And she's just kind of so confused, asking him, well, you mean you wouldn't even kiss anyone else? And there's a a sense to which they can't understand it. So I think it's because our society has adopted a worldview that idolizes sex and romantic relationships. It says these things are essential to your happiness. How could you possibly live without them? But I think the problem is that the church has built into this myth too. Uh, David Bennett, this man, the former gay activist who became a Christian, said this, Even in my church, friendship seemed secondary to romantic love. It seemed like everyone had been spending more time reading Jane Austen than the New Testament or watching 90s rom-coms more than the work of the Spirit. So I think we idolize romance, but we also idolize sex. We've made the same assumption about sexual freedom. We've looked on the, as the culture has preached a gospel of sexual freedom and feel like we're missing out like the, uh, the participant of Veganuary, you know, somebody who's imposed veganism on themselves for a month, going out for a meal with their friends who are all eating steak, and we're looking longingly at what's in front of them and feel like we're missing out if we're single and not sexually active. This is the central reason why people struggle with the Bible's teaching on this subject, and that's why they wonder why it's unfair or harmful or even impossible to deny yourself in this way. So why is this call to celibacy and singleness for the, for the same-sex attracted Christian, but also for others, um, Why is it good news? I want to say three reasons. One is our vision of singleness is far too negative. Uh, Sam Albury, uh, the pastor and speaker for Zacharias Trust, uh, said this, Jesus himself was single, and this is very significant. He was the most fully human and complete person who ever lived. His singleness in no way diminished his humanity. He was not less of a person for it. No one is. Marriage, for all its blessing, is not intrinsic to being whole and fully realized as a person. 
If you think that singleness somehow means uh, being less than full human flourishing, well, you have to look at the example of Christ, who's the most human, the fully human person who ever lived. Look at the example of Paul. Paul describes singleness as a gift, perhaps even preferable to marriage. I'm not saying it's always a utopian personal experience, but say there are certain advantages to singleness. 1 Corinthians describes them being spared certain troubles in life able to invest in and serve others outside of biological families in a way that those with family responsibilities may not be able to, to invest in a wide range of friendships. I think we also need to challenge the, 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 the idol of sexual freedom and sexual permissiveness. And what I mean by that is to see something of the pain that comes from our society's um, approach to sex. See the way that the permissive sexual ethic has not led to human flourishing. The sexual revolution that began in the 60s, as we kind of see the wheels coming off that project. And even secular commentators are starting to see that. I would describe the contemporary approach to sex as an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. People are pursuing more and more sexual pleasure through all sorts of avenues, embracing no-strings-attached sex, multiple partners at the same time, but they're not actually finding pleasure at the end. Numerous sociological studies have shown that those who report the lowest level of sexual satisfaction are promiscuous singles with frequent sexual encounters. There are things that we've embraced that appeared harmless. Said, well, nobody suffers, no one's hurt by this, but have actually destroyed lives. Think about something as simple as pornography. Think about the way that people will talk about as a, a secular campaign, fight the new drug. They'll talk, they'll talk at length about the idea of addiction to this. Think about broken relationships. Think about generation of, generations of women growing up who are struggling with body image because of the onslaught of sexual Im- imagery in our society, who are comparing themselves to the images that are all around us. We need to realize something of the biblical wisdom, the wisdom of this timeless wisdom, so to speak, on, te- on sex and sexuality. But it's not to say that there's a cost, there isn't a cost to following Jesus we also need to remember that the cost of following Jesus is part of the everyday calling to follow Christ. Singleness has a cost, and there is a cost to the person choosing to follow Jesus who's exclusively attracted to the same sex. Following Jesus may involve ending a relationship, saying no to the prospect of another, and may even involve being rejected by their community. But this is the standard expectation of the New Testament. The call to follow Jesus will always involve a call to deny yourself and take up your cross. In Matthew 16, Jesus says this. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call to following Jesus will involve dying to self, dying to your old life, to putting some things down in order to receive and take up your new life in Christ. For someone exclusively attracted to the same sex, it will involve laying down the prospect of marriage or significant relationship. But for others, it might mean something different. Think about the Muslim in a country like Pakistan who's considering following Jesus. Would have to count the cost that they may um, be ostracized from their family, may even lose their own life for following Christ. Or the single Christian woman in her 40s in Britain who turns down a marriage proposal from a non-Christian and with it the prospect of having a family because she follows Jesus and doesn't want to marry a non-Christian. So the Christian life is full of costly sacrifice and perhaps gay people or people coming from another background have a, have a kind of better vision of the reality that is true for all of us. And yet, it's totally worth it. 
In Mark 10, 28, uh, Peter tells Jesus they've left everything to follow him. What's Jesus' response? Jesus said this, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is promising something of a reward in this life And the next, following Christ may involve leaving behind your old community, but you're being placed in a new family of God, marked by the love of Christ. This was totally my experience. As I died to my old life and the prospect of a loving relationship, I found something far greater. I found something primarily in the love of Christ and my heavenly Father as I encountered him in prayer in my own bedroom. But I I also found this in the love of Christians in the church. These new friendships surpassed anything that I'd experienced in the world. Two particular friends, one, um, the guy who led me to faith, and another guy who worked for a student ministry. And they loved me in such a way that I'd never been loved before. I had spent my life being, in some ways, humiliated and mocked. But in Christians, I met people who loved me unconditionally and accepted me joyfully as their peer. So I experienced celibate singleness for five years, and yet I experienced a richer and more satisfying life in Christ than I ever had before. So what happened next? Well, God took me on something of a journey of transformation. As I understood my heavenly Father's love, I no longer felt the need to prove myself myself to the world because I knew that I was already accepted by him. So I gave up some of the activities, the business and other things and started to live a more balanced life. I was changed so much. I was uh, lost so much this kind of relentless drive for activity to prove myself that my housemates were like, who are you and what have you done with the guy we used to live with? As I understood his love and grace, he started to take my shame away. I started to realize my true identity. He started to change my behavior, became less angry, less arrogant, less insecure. I started to experience God's sanctification. I grew in my understanding of my masculinity. And I realized, I came to understand, whatever my attractions, I am a man made in the image of God, created and designed by him. I didn't need to look to other men to complete me in a way that I had previously. Even started to change the way I saw women. I realize this might sound a little bit uh, unlikely to you, but the best way I describe it is a little bit like puberty. I just started to notice certain things about women that I hadn't uh, previously. Started to have attraction towards women for the first time. And obviously this is a, a much uh, shorter journey, uh, a shorter, shortened version of a much longer healing journey. But I started to experience attraction towards girls. Um, I did experience and, and, and still experience attraction towards guys. So this obviously raises the question, what is the goal for the Christian who experiences same-sex attraction? Sometimes Christians have, have almost fallen into the trap of suggesting that for the same-sex attraction Christian, the goal is heterosexuality. I would say quite the opposite. The very center of of following Christ, I think the very beginning is an identity change. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, and such were some of you. It's It's saying a declaration that that's who you were, but that's not who you are now. At the very minimum, their identity has changed. When I became a Christian, before my attractions had any altered at all, I realized I was now an adopted son of God. 
and that this was my identity first and foremost. Anything else, my work, my activities, my skills, or indeed my sexual attractions would not be the best way to identify or to describe myself. Not least because as a label, it connects your desires to your identity. It says who you are, who you want sexually, so to speak, is who you are socially. And that isn't what we'd say if you're a Christian. From a Christian perspective, your sexual desires, ordered or disordered, as I, in a sense I would say probably are true for all of us, they shouldn't define you. So I reject the, uh, the kind of gay Christian label, or at least for me, I, I quickly took that label away and I said, uh, I use that label that many you might have heard before, a Christian with same-sex attraction. I, I think that's a fine label to use, but I would also caution that becoming a significant part of your identity. Sexual attractions, particularly ones that don't reflect God's intended design for you, are not who you are. But should we expect attractions to be changed? Should we uh, pursue heterosexual desires as our main goal? I would say it shouldn't be our main focus. The primary goal of the Christian life is is Christ-likeness, is godliness, and becoming more like the person of Christ. And there's no guarantee that our desires will be changed in that 1 Corinthians passage. It's no expectation that Christians will definitely see their attractions changed, but rather, like any other temptation, in the power of the Holy Spirit, they can be overcome and resisted, whilst knowing that we will face temptations till our dying day. However, every Christian is on something of a journey of transformation, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. For some, this will include a change in attractions and perhaps marriage. I point to a lady like Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lesbian English professor in the US. She's now married with children. A man called um, Sean Doherty leads a theological college in Bristol. Similar story. But for others, it will look like beautiful, countercultural lives of single celibacy. And these will point to the awesomeness of God as something better than anything else, including the temptations that they face. Think about a lady called Anne Witten who works for Living Out, uh, since she, which is a, a Christian organization on this subject. Since she became a Christian about 12 to 14 years ago, she, went, she would say she's still attracted to women exclusively and hasn't experienced a change in her attractions, but chooses the single life because she loves God more than anyone or anything else. And at the heart of both of these options is an embrace of an identity in Christ rather than who they're attracted to and a choice to submit to God in every area of their lives. Someone suggested it's dangerous to propose uh, change in attractions, and there are some hard stories of people who've set their heart on change but not seen it and turned away from Christ as a result. I would certainly share their concern and wouldn't promise that, but I do think the power of the cross is big enough for everything, including our sexual sin and brokenness. For some, we'll see that in our lives today. For others, we'll only see the full transformation in this area after Jesus has returned. So there's probably two errors, promising healing and change or suggesting change is impossible, which actually just witnessed a huge number of of celebrities who experience something of a fluidity to their sexual desires that actually probably, I think, probably leads is more where the the reality fits. But I should tell you something about my relationship with Jen, not least because it's a testimony to God's grace in in our lives and through Jen. I was very nervous. She was effectively my first girlfriend. I was worried about those stories of guys who get married and then years later come out and get as gay and get divorced. I guess I'd already done that, so it was a little bit uh, less pressure. Um, I told Jen very early, about one month in, and she was amazing. She said it didn't change anything. I still continued to have major fears throughout the first nine months of our relationship. I had to learn to trust God with our relationship, uh, with my feelings, and trust him for the future. 
uh, just as my, in my initial discipleship, uh, the community, the brothers around me were essential in discipling me through those fears. And God gave Jen a lot of uh, grace for my brokenness and healing journey. We found ourselves growing in attraction throughout our relationship and, and increasing conviction that God had called us together uh, to, and, start, uh, and we started to dream together about serving him uh, for the rest of our lives. We've been married for about four and a half years um, and without going into too much detail, we're happily married in every sense of the word. So how do we engage then with this question, of, um, with, the, with the world on this question of sexuality? I want to turn to the, uh, just to close really uh, with, to this uh, passage in 1 Peter 2. Uh, it said this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from, sexual, from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I want to suggest two big things that come from this passage. The first thing, and this goes in this question of sexuality, but I think it's much broader than that. You need to embrace your alien identity. As a follower of Christ, you will be different to the people around you. And the biggest mistake that Christians can make is thinking that they need to conform to the culture. This, I think, is a, a human uh, tendency in all of us. We want to look like the people around us. It's comfortable to fit in. But Peter is saying the exact opposite, saying, remember who you are. You're aliens, you're foreigners. Your home is with Christ. You are, in ex you are exiles in this world. You do not belong in this world. You are going to be marching to a different drumbeat. For some of you, you need to remember that you are not called to resemble everybody else. Following Christ requires you to hold on to this timeless wisdom. Even whilst all around you there are people who are arguing for a very different ethic of life. Woe betide us as a church if we start to borrow the wisdom of the world and apply it to our own lives. I think this also says don't be surprised when the culture around you is marching to a very different drumbeat. Many of us look around the culture and hear lots of stories and just feel like our, our society is shifting so dramatically on this question. And I, I don't know about you, but I certainly sometimes feel a sense of fear about that. But actually this tells me don't be surprised when society marches to a different drumbeat. Don't be madly trying to address that and fight a culture war, I would argue, because actually you're aliens, you're exiles. It's to be expected that the people around you argue for a very different way of life. What's fascinating about the early church is not that they uh, fitted in with the sexual ethic around them, but they were totally marching to a different drumbeat. The vision of singleness, the single life as a flourishing life, is a, is a unique Christian idea in the sense that at the time, I believe it was even um, one of the Roman emperors not too long after Christ, even made it m mandatory that a woman needed to be remarried if she... Uh, her husband died after about three years. There was no space for a single life in the Roman Empire. Men in the, sexual, in the Roman Empire were given such sexual license to basically have sex with whoever and whenever they wanted it. The dignity of women is, again, a, a, a relatively unique Christian idea. So the Christian faith flourished in the early church precisely because they stood against the culture. We will not be successful by giving in to the cultural uh, vision of sexual flourishing. And neither, by the way, should, it, should we make the transformation of culture our overriding aim. I think there's an expectation here that Christians will always stick out. 
they'll always be different to the people around them on this question. But the second thing this says is that you must live such good lives among the pagans so they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There are two dangers. One is a kind of uh, chameleon-like adoption of the culture, but the other is a kind of withdrawal from culture where you become like a kind of hedgehog and you just reject all of culture and don't engage with the people around you. But this passage implies a kind of uh, living amongst other people, an engagement which may feel uncomfortable. It means you must be distinctive in the way that you operate with others, distinctive in the way that you love people, actually pushing into the lives of the people around you. It's so easy to be a Christian who shrinks back from relationships at work or friendships with certain people because they're different to us. And Christ is calling us to the uncomfortable position of being right in the world but not being of it. Live such good lives among the pagans. This is not a remote act of kindness. This is living with others. Asking them to tell you their story. Listening to them. Possibly apologizing sometimes for the, 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 for the sins of the church. Not caveating God's love to people. When so, you know, if a gay person asks you, does God love me? I think quite, I wouldn't want to caveat that. I wouldn't want to say, yes, he loves you, but by the way, you're gay. So you know, there's, a, there's a kind of second thing here. It's not making assumptions about their spiritual state. Not holding back from inviting them uh, into church or into a relationship with Christ uh, just because of, of the way you perceive there's going to be an issue. But you've got to remember that Christ is the one who's calling them to this command. It's an, an accepting something of a lordship of, of Christ in their life. When, I, when my friend was uh, loving me and telling me about Jesus, he asked another friend, what should I do? You know, obviously, I know that Jeremy's gay and this is going to have implications. And the friend wisely said to him, let them work that out with God when he comes to faith. Let him first draw him to Christ. Because they too, like all of us, have been invited into the banquet at the end of time to experience Christ's love for eternity. Hallelujah. But I want to leave you with one final point. And that's that everybody here must hear the, hear the call to follow Christ and to take up their cross. That this calling that the Christ is calling to the gay person is actually the call for every person to take up their Christ, that take up their cross and follow him. For the gay person, it will mean the prospect of being in a relationship. For some of us coming from a non-Christian family, it might mean the prospect of rejection from your family. For some of us, it might mean ridicule and rejection from our colleagues and friends if they find out our biblical convictions on all sorts of subjects. For all people, there is a cost to following Christ. It will require a willingness to lay down parts of your life. And this really just hinges on the ultimate question, is Christ worth it? Can he be trusted? To which our answer is a hearty amen. Absolutely, he can. Jesus tells the story um, of a man who finds treasure hidden in a field. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys a field. It's really easy to miss that. In his joy, he sells all that he has. The calling to follow Christ may involve giving up every part, everything that you hold dear, but he does it in joy. Why? Because the treasure that he's found is absolutely worth it. We can make the choice to follow Christ, whatever the cost, because we have found something far greater. We have found a saviour who paid the ultimate cost, who gave his body and blood for us, who sacrifices the living guarantee that his love is certain, 
There needs to be no doubting his love. That when some of us say no to being in a relationship or anything else for, because we want to follow Christ, we've found a more certain hope, a more certain and satisfying source of life. we found the love of Christ, and his love is better than life. Can I lead us in prayer to respond to that? Maybe that as I've spoken, there are things that Christ has been putting his finger on in your life. Areas where you feel like you need to surrender. I'm just going to lead us in prayer just to respond to his call. And then we'll have some chance for worship and ministry. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it. Lord, we thank you that the call to lay down our lives, the call to surrender everything, is one that we can do in great joy. For the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. Lord, we thank you that at your hand are pleasures forevermore, that your love is better than life, that following you will involve a cost, but we know that that cost is totally worth it. Lord, we want to surrender again. We want to say we, we want to be willing to take up our cross to follow you, to be a distinctive alien people who, walk, who march to a different drumbeat, who are willing to endure the rejection of others, who are willing to be considered to be pariahs because we've found a love that is better than life. We thank you that we have your love, that your love is better than life. We thank you that we can give everything to follow you because you're totally worth it. Help us to surrender everything to you. Help us to see the great joy that comes with following you, the knowledge of your love that's totally worth it. Amen.